If you could open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we're reading a little bit smaller section, at least, than we have been for the past couple weeks. We're going to be reading verses 21 to 32. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. And isn't that amazing what we just read? Psalm 22, written by David, a thousand years before Christ ever walked the world. And yet, when you're reading it, you probably are going to feel a lot like Mark felt when seeing or rather hearing the event come from the mouth of Peter. Seeing how much what David wrote about is coming to a reality in the life of Jesus Christ. In his death, how many prophecies are being fulfilled? The one thing that we can definitely know that during this whole escapade, his whole trial, when it seems like evil is the one who's in control, that's the hour of the power of darkness, yes, but whose purposes are really being worked out if they are unwittingly fulfilling prophecy from a thousand years before? See if you could just have some of those parallels in mind. See if what sort of text or what sentences from Psalm 22, that first half, come up while I read, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Gogotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what, should eat, what each should take. And it was the third hour, or about noon, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! Who would destroy the temple? Or you who would destroy the temple? And rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another. Saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. That we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. If there's one thing that probably struck you, it's probably the same thing that struck me. Just the brutality of this. I mentioned last week that this whole crucifixion, really this whole execution process was a process engineered to produce shame in the individual. It was about pain, yes. 
It was about excruciating pain. But it was engineered to shame the individual. Cicero, a Roman uh, from about in the mid-50s, wrote that the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from the Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. What he was saying is, this type of crucifixion was something so horrendous that not only was it illegal to apply to a Roman citizen, it was something that was only applied to foreigners, slaves, or prisoners of war. This type of shame was not legally able to be applied to a Roman citizen. And yet, just the whole thought of the process of it all kept him away from it. Told that we should not, even as Romans, think about these things, something so horrendous. And even with that word that I said, I said it was excruciating. Even our word for that, ex-crucifixion, is that, if we broke it down, out of the cross. When we want to have a word that describes agonizing pain, no matter how bad the flogging was, what the word that we have is it's excruciating. But that's not the only thing we see. Really, we're going to go through the shame of the cross and see something a little bit deeper that's being revealed in it. Because yes, we see the excruciating suffering. Yes, we see the irony that's being revealed. But we also see God's purposes being revealed in this moment. There's a reason why we as Christians call this Good Friday. And it's not because Jesus experienced pain and suffering. If we look at this, sometimes we read moments, we read events like this, and we think that this is just Mark telling us the bare facts of the matter. That he's just telling us all the different things that happened in order, and that's the only significance to it, is the fact that he died. And that it might be kind of artificial to read in any deeper meanings into this. I think that's why we have to remember what's going on here. That God's purposes are at work. Predictions and scriptures are being fulfilled in this. That these are the works of people, real people, and yet at the same time, God's purposes are being worked out. We could just look at one example of that in verse 21. That we see this, we have a character introduced that we never hear of again at all in scripture. Simon the Cyrene. Cyrene was a location in North Africa, was in modern day Libya, where there was a large Jewish colony. It seems like this guy was probably just going in to worship. It was, was the time of the Passover. And he came by and he was pressed into service. And Mark tells us that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. What's the point? Why is he even telling us about this? Well, we see this name Rufus come up one other time in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, where we see Rufus mentioned in the list of Paul's thanks to the Romans, the church in Rome. Seems like this, this moment where Mark is speaking to his audience about someone they would have known. That Simon the Serena, you know, the father 
of Alexander and Rufus. Two people who follow after Christ. We don't know that for sure. But at least with the only other mention of Rufus, it seems like it. But there's also another important reason in this. Narratively. It's the same reason why we had Barnabas mentioned last week. The whole point last time when we were looking at Jesus being declared innocent was that he was not suffering on account of his own sins, but on the account of the sins of his people. And if anyone could say in the storyline, Jesus died in my place for my sins. He died the death I deserved. It would be Barnabas. Or not Barnabas, rather. Barabbas. Whoops. Let's clear. You can correct me if I say things wrong at any point in time. I've gotten used to that. Barabbas. You know, if anyone could have said, I know what it means to follow Jesus, to pick up my cross, deny myself, and follow him. We see that in Simon. No wonder why he has Rufus that is a possible follower of Christ from this moment. Simon, the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 34 and 35 say, either I could turn there if I can't find it, that Jesus said, whoever after predicting his crucifixion and his death on the cross and, that, and, and his subsequent resurrection, Jesus said, calling to the crowd to himself with his disciples, so in other words, everyone, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, in Simon, he saw this firsthand. He, on the way to uh, Golgotha, Jesus was just flogged. He had his back beaten and brutalized. And he would have then had to carry not the entire cross, but just the horizontal cross beam that would have been strapped to his back and he would have had to walk it to the place of his crucifixion. And Jesus, after such a severe beating, isn't able to walk. And Simon knows firsthand what it looks like to pick up his cross and follow him, bearing the shame, having to be compelled to do it, by the way. Probably the Roman soldier would have, as they're leading Jesus, would have held their spear put to the shoulder of some seemingly random person to have to be compelled to go in, who was just there to worship God. And he was compelled. And that was the means that God could have used just to save him. And nothing happens by accident. You know, we think about, when we think about the crucifixion, we mainly focus on the physical pain of it all. And we see that. But the thing is, is really we only see it with two Greek words. That he was flogged. They flogged him was one Greek word. And they crucified him in verse 24a. One word. And Mark does not go into the gory details. That I think... We might need to. 
before we start, I think it's just important to say that Mark's point isn't the physical part of the suffering so much as the spiritual meaning of it all. What does it mean that he died on the cross for our sins? What's the reason for it? But Mark's audience would have been very, very familiar, just as familiar as Cicero was, with what was involved. That's why I think it's helpful to understand these things. To understand why this would be worse than flogging. Having a leather whip with bones and metal whip against you probably over 40 times. Well, when he's carrying it, we have to understand that the fact that while he was carrying he would go over, carry the crossbeam up to a, a vertical stake that would be in the ground that would remain there. And what would happen is once he got there, he would be laying down on his back, the back that was just whipped onto the cross, onto the horizontal crossbeam. I know there's pictures of Jesus having nails put through the center of his palms. But in the Roman world, they would have called anything above the wrist part of your hand. They would have taken a sharp metal stake. And they would have nailed it right through the median nerve on his wrist. It would be located in the wrist so that it could hook and stay locked in. It would hit the nerve. And if you've ever hit your funny bone, I think you have a small sense of what that would be like. Except instead of just smacking your funny bone, this is putting a nail through it, crushing it. He would have had then either his legs tied up or his nail put through both of his feet, his ankles. And he would be put at such a way that he's outstretched that he would either, he would either have a full breath of air fully extended with his diaphragm extended and for every breath that he would have to get he would have to extend his legs, reach up to release the air to be able then to breathe. Putting weight on either the nails on his feet or the nails piercing his hands. And crucifixion was engineered not to be a fast death, but to be a slow death. And sometimes the floggings were just, that part of it was just to shorten how long someone would be on the cross. They could be there for days, breathing, having to fight for every breath, and eventually you die of asphyxiation. This is what he went through. If he was innocent, declared innocent, and was the innocent Lamb of God who suffered in our place, why did there have to be a Lamb at all? Why this amount of suffering? Why suffering to begin with? Why couldn't Jesus just have died? There's so many different details throughout this text, it's hard just to get through it all. But he was led through following a pattern of death that was written in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ ever walked the earth. Speaking, did you hear that they pierced my feet and my hands? This was before crucifixion as a form of death had ever been engineered. What does this say about the plan of God? But worse, in our minds, what does this say that about God's purposes? 
Whose idea was it to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ? It was ours. It was God's, rather, for our sins. We see this, we see this pain, this cruelty. And we have this confusing image, then, throughout the New Testament that talks about the good news of Christianity linked to this. If it was really so cruel and so painful... How come Paul said in second or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that when he came to the church he did not proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom but that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified How come that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says now I'd remind you brothers the gospel I preached to you, which you have received in which you stand, by which you are being saved. And he summarizes it as this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what was I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, Jesus' death not only fit in accordance with the plan of God, or 1 Corinthians 3, according to the scriptures. But the good news part of it is that he died for our sins. He was a lamb, yes, a substitute in our place. But the price of the forgiveness that he bought for his people was high. What does this say about the sinfulness of sin? That he needed to undergo such excruciating pain. That the only way for humanity to be redeemed was for the Son of God to come for this purpose, to die on the cross. It speaks to the justice of God. It speaks to the fact that God will not let any sin go unpunished. If he could, if he was willing, he would not have had Jesus suffer like this. But it doesn't just reveal the justice of God. It doesn't just reveal his, the high price of sin. The cruelty also reveals their own hate, doesn't it? That's what we see in this next section. It's filled with irony, by the way. Verse 25, we're told that it was about the third hour. It's around noon that he's crucified. He's going to be on the cross for about three hours before the sun goes dark. And he has an inscription that's read above him. And the inscription, by the way, is there so that everyone knows why he's there. Why is Jesus suffering on the cross? Because he is the king of the Jews. John tells us that the chief priests were pretty annoyed by this. And said, hey, can we add a phrase to the beginning of it? That he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate was kind of perturbed by it. And didn't want to have anything to do with it. The reason why he was killed on the cross. Was yes, because he was, he said he was the king of the Jews. But more importantly, it was because he was the king of the Jews. And people didn't believe it 
did not believe in prophecies like Isaiah chapter 53 that predicted the suffering servant or Isaiah or Psalm 22, even though they had a sign above his head that told them the reality of it. And Luke tells us it was written in three different languages. It was written in Latin, it was written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Everyone was able to read and everyone was able to see the obvious truth. It's an obvious truth, by the way, that his own accusers mentioned. The irony reveals the reality of this truth. That Jesus was who he said he was. Did you notice their conviction? They told him in verse 31. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Each time, three different times. Different people are commanding him. Why don't you get down off the cross if you're the king? Wouldn't that be the thing that would demonstrate your power? Wouldn't that be the thing that demonstrated the reality of who you say you are if you come down from the cross? But they have that tacit admission in there. He saved others. Jesus had already proven who he was. He already healed people. He already rose Lazarus from the dead. He was able to save others. In fact, that's why we were told, even at the very beginning of Mark, that's why he came. Mark chapter 2 said, just as a physician comes not to heal the well, but those who are sick, so the Son of Man came to seek and save sinners, to call them unto repentance. As Luke adds that extra phrase on there. Jesus has always been about saving sinners. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And whether it's the people who are just passing by who are deriding him, wagging their head, or it's the chief priest, they're all criticizing different elements of who Jesus claimed to be. Maybe with out knowledge of it, or maybe with knowledge of it. First, in verse 29, what's the first thing that they condemn? What's the first thing they mock and ridicule? They wag their head, saying, aha, by the way, that word is just, you can add a laughing, mocking tone. I'm not sure exactly what it looks like to add that mocking tone, and in America, I think it seems like someone who's laughing at you. I don't know what it would have been like for that culture, but the whole point of that word, aha, is just to say, whatever they're doing, they're doing this with mocking derision. And they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That was Jesus' prophecy. The Messiah was going to come would be a prophet raised like Moses. A prophet's able to predict the future in his particularities and everything that's going to happen. A prophet declares the will of God for our salvation. They question and mock the very idea that his prophecy would become true when it would come true just 40 short years later. Or really here, this prophecy that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, this is exactly what's said in John chapter 2, verse 19. But Jesus was not talking about the physical building, even though he did predict its destruction. He was talking about his own body. 
they also mark, mock the fact that he would, a priest, that the chief priests and the scribes came together and they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They're mocking Jesus' very ability to do that. He was able to save other people. If he was really as powerful of a savior as he claimed to be, wouldn't he be able to save himself? And then they mock him last as the king. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. The reality is, is that they would not believe no matter what Jesus did. What's easier? For him to come down off the cross and put it into submission all his enemies, or to die... Remain dead, not just rise from the dead, but rise from the dead with an entirely new glorified body. And then to ascend to heaven on the clouds, to the right hand of God and sit on the throne as the true king of Israel, on the throne of David and on the throne of God. What's truly easier? And yet Matthew Matthew 28 records that even when the glorified risen Christ stood before people, some believed and some doubted. If we're honest with ourselves, I remember watching a debate. It was just a small clip of TikTok, probably level length of it, I'm ashamed to say. And when I, in that clip, it was, it was funny because, you know, you have the background music playing behind it. But the atheist on one side said, you know, I would believe if God just personally came to, down to me. If he stood before me and said, Nick Krause, I am the one true God. The Bible is my book. And then a lightning cloud from heaven came down with a Bible in front of him miraculously appearing. And he said, believe in me and then disappeared. If I had that sort of experience, then I would believe. And it was funny because the other apologist just disarmingly said, that's not quite true. If you had seen that, wouldn't you say, my, that was a crazy hallucination. That doesn't fit in the way I think the world works. That was a strange event. Was anyone else there around to see it, to see if I just maybe fell asleep? Maybe it was a weird dream. Wouldn't we explain it away some way or another? This is exactly what the Pharisees did. And this is what believers of all ages have done. Jesus does not need to repeat miracles for you over and over again on your timing in order for you to believe. What we're given is an infallible record of historical events that actually happened. And we either believe it or we don't. But God does not stoop down like a cosmic Pez dispenser, giving us when we, what we want when we want it. That's not the way the God of the universe works. Instead, he works according to his own plan. Hence why they were gambling for his clothing, the soldiers. Jesus, when he was put up on the cross, would have been stripped naked with nothing. And they were deciding who should get what. These were the only possessions that Jesus had, and they were just dividing up amongst themselves. They had no idea that they were doing exactly what God said would happen. 
It's an amazing thing. And yet we're still left with that question. That this, what does this reveal to us? We see his innocence reveals that he is our substitute. But here, his pain and his shame, what it reveals to us ultimately is God's love for sinners. That's the big idea. That's the point. That's what's being revealed to us in this moment. God's love for sinners. And this is throughout the New Testament when reflecting on this moment. That we're told, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, how does that make sense? If I told you I was sitting on a pier at the end of a dock and I saw someone drowning in the water and then right behind me a guy runs past me saying, I love you, and then jumps into the water and drowns. How is that good news? That wouldn't be good news. What makes it good news is, would be the fact that he didn't just jump into the water and didn't just drown, but that he actually dove into the water to save that person who was drowning. And that they were actually able to save the person. The fact that he's our substitute matters because or the reason why Jesus came to be our substitute is because God loves us. That's the reason why the man jumps into the water, or here, Christ became a man. He died, yes, for our sins. But what this reveals to us is God's love for sinners. We see this all over the place. John chapter 15, verse 13, when speaking to his disciples, he says, No greater love, or greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not know who does not love does not know God because God is love. How do we know that? Verse 9. And this is 1 John 4. In this, the love of God has, was made manifest or made visible among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. His love is being shown in the fact that, you know what? Jesus could have gotten down from the cross. He had the power to. And we see in the last breaths of his life that he had energy. Even though he was too weak to carry the crossbeam, he still had energy. He still had strength. If his kingdom was of this world, Jesus already told Pilate that he had a thousand legion of angels who could come at his beck and call. The problem was is that Jesus chose to be on the cross. He could have at any moment saved himself, but if he saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save us. Jesus now on the cross is our substitute, and he's dying for our sins, and he's dying so that he could save sinners. This was the only way. 
He'd already lived the life that they should have lived, and now it's time for him to die the death that they deserved to die. This is what he did. This is how he showed love. And for us, in reflecting on this, I think it's helpful, or at least it was helpful to me to listen to what Calvin said when talking about the powers of darkness. That seems all too customary. That wicked people estimate the power of God by present appearances. So that when God doesn't seem to be able to accomplish what we think he should be accomplish, if we were God, we accuse him of weakness. Whatever does not, God does not do that fits our, our preconceived plan of how he should operate, that that's somehow weakness in God. That this is the logic of Satan that attempts to drive us to despair. That it's vain to be assured of God's love if we are going through suffering. If we have months, weeks, years of unexplained physical illness, months, or actually I'll, week, days, weeks, months, years of unexplained depression. If we go through all this, months, weeks, <laughs> I did it again. Weeks, months, years, there we go. Weeks, months, years of wayward children who abandon the faith and aren't like Alexander and Rufus, but it seems like they're just living in sin and enjoying it. What's made manifest to us here in this moment is the fact that while we go through suffering, it doesn't mean that God is impotent. It doesn't mean that God's love is not true for us because God's love was true for Jesus, wasn't it? The father loved his son. But the thing is, is God had a different purpose in mind. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that so whoever would believe in him would not perish or would not die, but would have everlasting life. Jesus went through excruciating suffering for a time, and people looked at that instance and said, your circumstances do not speak for you, who you say you are. Your circumstances do not speak of God's love for you, of your righteousness, of your holiness. But that was true for Jesus. Because God had a greater plan in it. And the reality with our sufferings is that we don't always see God's plan in it. We don't always know exactly why he's doing what he's doing. But hasn't he shown his love for us? Hasn't he already proven when terrible sufferings came to Jesus according to God's plan that God has a reason behind suffering? Because the same God who ordained this moment is the same God who ordains every moment of your life. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of our salvation and says that in verse 4, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
We have testimony of God's love to us. It's been revealed in this. It's been revealed in this in the sense of all suffering, by the way, works out for our good and God's glory, as Romans 8, 28 tells us. But more importantly than that, we have assurance that God loves us for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died as our substitute. And the thing that motivated him, how God's love was made manifest towards sinners, is that the motivating principle was his love for sinners. The cross can be the summary of the good news of the gospel because it's at the cross that we see the high standard God holds for sin. It's at the cross that we see that he takes it all seriously. It's at the cross we see that God's love for his own son, Jesus' love for his own life, he, in an unfathomable thing for us to understand, that God loved his son, but he also loved the world that he crucified the son he loves. That he put on them the death penalty that those sinners whom he loves deserves. And every moment of this is coming out to God's plan for God's purposes. And the irony of it all is that everything they said was true about him. He is their king. He had prophecies that come true. Every prophecy he said came true. That he was a priest who not only came to save his people, but he came to be the very sacrifice that saved them. And this crucified king is your king, is my king, who we look through all the lens of the sufferings of our life We look to the founder of our faith who suffered before us and suffered to save us. Let us pray. Dear gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have told us who Jesus is. And that before this moment of the crucifixion, that you spent these first 14 chapters showing us who Jesus is. Showing us that he is innocent showing us that he's able to save, showing us that even his death was part of God's purposes, and it was purposes to save sinners whom he loved. And Lord, I do pray. I pray that the sufferings of this life would not get in the way of our vision of that. That while we walk through this life in the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, we confess that we often just only focus on the evil, Unable to see through the fog your goodness, your kindness. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be like a light shining in our hearts to be able to see that the light of the world has come. Help us to love the light rather than the darkness. Help us to love the Son who lived for us, who died for us, and who suffered such extent of suff- great extent of suffering because that's what the cost to save the sinners whom he loved. Oh Lord, we cannot gra- get our minds around the height, the depth of your love for us. 
Lord, I pray for anyone who does not have their mind around God's love for sinners displayed in the cross. I pray that they would come up to someone afterwards, that they would seek to know of what you are showing us here. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.